Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the scenes of the episode, season one finale, related to Laura Palmer, her stories, her, her life, her death, and all of that. Within the Laura story, the first big subplot, of course, as always this season, is her murder. At this point, we can fold her relationship to Leo entirely into either the murder subplot or the mystery man subplot, because he's very explicitly tied to both, and that's how he's featured in this, in terms of his relationship to Laura. So first up, we have Cooper and One-Eyed Jacks. He's doing really well at Blackjack. A woman comes up and whispers in his ear, and he very politely declines, says, thanks for asking, maybe later. A very nice way of sort of showing him to be suave, a ladies' man, but also kind of respectful at the same time, while still playing his role as a serious criminal type who's there to see Jacques. It's all very, you know, very well done, well executed by Cooper. He shows Jacques Lars Chip that he doesn't tell him what it is yet, and Jacques kind of plays along. I don't know who Leo is, whatever, and he says, I'll buy you a cocktail, Jacques, and then they go off to a table. So at the table, they're sitting together. That's when Jacques kind of freaks out. Uh, he almost runs away when Cooper shows him the chip, but Cooper grabs his hands like, easy, easy. You know, why do you think all this is going on? And they talk, they end up talking a lot about Leo and the drugs, but, uh, you know, it brings it back around to Laura's murder as previously arrest, uh, mentioned. He's set up a meeting with Jacques, and of course that's just, a, it's a capture oper- operation. Uh, the cops are all waiting for Jacques at the water processing plant. They come up, they arrest him, and then later at the hospital we have the scene where he's telling them what happened with Laura and Renette. So as you can see, like this whole first part of the episode is all to, to do with the murder is all Jacques stuff. Then as they're leaving Jacques' bedside, that's when Harry and Cooper talk about Leo, and now the focus starts to shift somewhat to Leo as as the primary suspect for the rest of the episode. So you could almost divide the episode that way, too. First half with Jock, second half with Leo. We have Cooper at the sheriff's station telling Hawk to set up a perimeter around the park when he finds out that uh, Leo's apparently at Easter Park, and they don't have a lot of resources, so he says, take the, all the people off of Leo's house. And then finally we have the scene where Jacques is killed uh, in the final episode. So Jacques, there's, there's a uh, fire alarm that's smashed intercut with all of these other melodramatic sequences so the nurses are running off trying to deal with it and this figure walks down the hallway in a black coat and enters Jacques' room slowly lifts the pillow and presses down on his face and he's suffocating so here we have another figure black figure whose face we can't see which we've already seen earlier in the episode with somebody hitting Jacoby but that figure was masked this one is not and it's Leland. So we'll talk about that in a second. And then the final scene related to the murder in this episode is it's 4.37 a.m. and Cooper's returning to his room. And uh, he's talking to Diane on his tape. It says, one suspect in custody and Leo Johnson, man I believe is responsible for Laura's death, won't be able to escape the dragnet we brought upon him much longer. When he's inside the room, he gets a call from Andy. And of course, then there's a knock at his door. And opens it and boom, shot three times. So the quietness of this hotel scene is a really good transition from the action-packed and super dramatic scenes that we've just seen unfold one after the other. So it feels like we're getting a breather, like, okay, settle down for a minute. But it's a nice setup for the big finale as a shocker. So if you had Cooper getting shot, like, boom, 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 right after all those other beats, I think it would lose a little because uh, it would just be too much, but with it gives us a little breath, and then boom, for the last, you know, jaunt of the roller coaster it works a little better it's also nice to you know quote hear diane again or hear him talking to diane uh, we haven't really had a diane sequence i don't think since the beginning of episode five so it's been a little while it's a nice way to end the season feels like or almost end the season you know it feels like we're coming a little full circle because of course 
When Cooper first enters Twin Peaks, he's talking to Diane. For the Palmer family subplot, which at this point, for the past four or five episodes, has totally been about Leland's crack-up, we have Leland entering the sheriff's station and asking Harry about, I heard you captured a suspect, you've got the man, you've got the man. And then he's able to pick up on Doc saying hospital. Uh, he says, yeah, I'm not going to the hospital anymore. Uh, or he actually prompts him. He says, oh, you going back to the hospital? And he says, no, no, I'm, I'm going home. You should be home with Sarah. And Leland's like, yes, yes. But then we see this, like, look come over. Is this this sort of, like, crazed look like he's been getting increasingly lately and says, hospital. And so then we kind of know it's probably going to be him killing Jacques. Although the fact that the guy's all dressed in black makes us wonder if it's going to be the same man who hit Jacoby earlier and so far we don't have any reason to know why or think you know that Leland would be the one who hit Jacoby so when the camera pans up and sees Leland it's like okay this is a separate thing probably there's a wonderful uh sound choice for for this killing like the way that uh Frost does it so he has you know there's a little bit of music mostly we have like the fire alarm in the background and it's a little bit muted as Jacques is struggling and then he, the camera goes up up tilts up and leland is screaming and then the fire alarm ends and just like that he shuts off wonderful transition and of course this is very reminiscent of godfather part three where al pacino does his silent scream now it actually wasn't intended it was cut uh afterwards walter Murch took out the sound of al pacino screaming and it was just really effective but godfather three came out six months after this aired so this was first, and in Reflections, the oral history way, Rewise makes particular note of this, taking credit for the uh, Pacino effect. As I mentioned, you know, the sound is wonderful, but it's interesting that the last episode also had a really great sound design, but in that one, the director, Caleb Deschanel, was mostly dealing with, like, ambiance, whereas Mark Frost is more, I think, reliant on sound effects. Like when Audrey's listening and we hear the sort of giggling off screen or Shelly's doing her hair and the water's running and Leo comes in reaching for the for the gun and that type of thing. So there's a great use of sound in this, uh, most effectively at the end with Leland here. For the relationship to Bobby, uh, this may soon transition into another storyline, depending how it goes, because at this point it's all to do with framing James. And we're traveling, even though the motive for that is that James dated Laura and Bobby did as well. It's almost becoming like a non-Lara story at this point, its implications. So first we have Bobby watching as Donna and James ride off from Jacoby's. He's like hiding behind a car or something, and he pops out and makes like a firing motion with his finger. Just a nice gesture. Frost loves these kind of theatrical gestures that the characters do. There's a lot of them throughout the episode. We have the licking of the blood and the you know, all the the um, Blood Brothers cutting the fingers with the knife and Catherine doing some sort of expressions that actually Piper Laurie talked about that we'll get to. He loves these kind of go-for-broke moments. Then we have got Bobby calling on the phone, I guess, from Easter Park, which is funny. So he followed them back to Easter Park. So he went to Easter Park with them, followed them to Jacoby's, then went back to Easter Park to call them from Easter Park. It's kind of a funny little roundelay. I'm not sure it needed to be that complex, but it is. He calls Lucy and says... You know, this is Leo. James is an easy rider or something like that. And uh, so that lets them know, you know, it's it's funny. He doesn't just say there's something in his tank. I think he says the easy rider line. So it's like he's got to be so clever. He almost screws himself over. But he seems to have accomplished his mission at this point. He set up Leo and he set up James. So Bobby reaches the end of the season achieving his goals. I'm not sure how many of the other people you can say that for. We have Lucy giving the note to Cooper and uh, Harry. When, when they come in with Bobby's message. 
So James goes off with Cooper, and Harry uh, uh, Cooper hands the note to Harry, says, check this out. So he takes James in the room. James is talking to him, and then Harry comes in, and he's got a little baggie with cocaine in it that was inside that package. I think people have thought, oh, maybe it's a bomb or something. Bobby's going to kill him. But no, it's just setting him up as a drug dealer. And earlier this episode, of course, uh, Cooper was told by Jacques that they they were dealing to some high school kid. So he's got reason to believe that it might actually be James. The only thing we really have directly relating to James's relationship with Laura as a subplot, besides that whole cocaine thing, is James reacting to Laura calling him dumb on the tape. You can see it's like kind of embarrassing for him. Donna and Maddie are watching, and Donna comforts him, and James says, I'm glad I heard her say it. I might have gone my whole life. So there's a sense here from what we're getting from the scene that he's kind of ready to move on. Maybe uh, he, he now, he's not as haunted. He knows she wasn't you know, really maybe that in love with him. There was a lot of other stuff going on with her. He didn't have a handle on her, and maybe he's in over his head. As far as Laura's relationship to Donna, Donna's in the episode quite a bit, but she doesn't talk about how she feels about any of this. She just goes in with him, finds the tape, listens to the tape, shows some sympathy to James. We don't get much of anything about her relationship to Donna this episode, uh, to, to Laura. For the therapy subplot, of course, that's where Donna and James and Maddie's attention is all focused. We have Donna and James breaking into Jacoby's apartment in that first scene. I think it's like an office slash apartment. Not entirely clear if he lives there and works there or if he just spends a lot of time there, but it's his office. Uh, but they go in there. They discover the tape in the half heart, as mentioned. There's like music, Hawaiian music playing, and they're trying to shut it off. It's a good little, good little scene, you know, sort of Veronica Marzi, in a way, I just watched, uh, the. I've been watching the second season of that show, and there's actually a scene where, like, a couple teenagers and, like, all clad in black kind of break into somebody's house and they're looking around, so you can see the influence there, or just they share common influences as well. And there's a cool little bit where they're looking through Jacoby's stuff, and they find these little drink umbrellas, like you would have in, like, a Hawaiian cocktail or whatever, and they have little tags on them about, like, Nixon, this is the, this is... The umbrella I had in my drink when Nixon resigned. This is for the moon landing and some quirky details like James Reed one that says, I first lay eyes on Mimsy. And this is all Mark Frost. You know, he loves history in the books he's written. He always tries to tie in grand historical events and figures with other stuff going on. So you know that he loved this. And, and this is sort of one of the few moments we've gotten with that sort of reference to outside history on uh, Twin Peaks. The other would that I can think of would be Tibet and also the Kennedy thing that he says in episode one. Both of those episodes also at least co-written by Frost. We're really spending time with Donna and James uh, to open this episode. And it's the first time that that's happened. So far, the Packard and Horn clans have opened an episode. Cooper and Audrey have opened one, I think, a few times. So Donna and James feel a little bit elevated to be getting that sort of uh, privilege in this episode, at least the first half hour of the episode, or the first half of the episode. But um, it's mostly plot-related stuff, as I said. The only real, or at least partial, character moment is the reactions to the tape. So then we go to Easter Park. We have Jacoby watching uh, Maddie in, in shock, and then the figure comes up behind him and bashes him over the head, this masked figure. Um, who could it be? You know, we see Leland later in black. We see, uh, Leo, uh, have a sort of hitting, beating people throughout the episode. We have Hank going all around attacking people. But then the question is why, why are they attacking Jacoby? Did they follow him there? No, we know they were already watching Maddie there. So it's interesting to go through and kind of figure out who could be where, when, and that sort of thing and what its implications are. 
And I love the shot too. I mean, the, you know, there's a the classic shot of his eye, very, very dramatic, uh, over the top, kind of his eye going in on his eye with the roulette wheel spinning. But I also really like the shot where he's just like gasping on the ground and there's all this grass in the foreground. It's really cool. The colors really pop the green of the grass and his Hawaiian shirt as he reaches out there. Very cool moment. We have Donna, James and Maddie listening to Laura's tape. Uh, and as they're listening, Doc Hayward gets a call to go to the hospital, probably because of Jacoby, who in a way they may have sent there. And I think later they say Jacoby had a, a heart attack. I don't think they say he was attacked, so I don't know if he even knows really what happened. He just kind of collapsed in the in the park at that moment. Cooper blames uh, James and, and Donna because he finds out they went there. So we have Doc looking over Jacoby at the hospital, and uh, it's funny, we can hear Mark Frost's unmistakable voice as the doctor talking to his own father because Warren Frost plays Doc Doc Hayward. But when the camera pans over, it's a different actor. So obviously that was overdubbed afterwards for some reason. And then Cooper and Harry get the news from Doc that Jacoby uh, was, you know, in the park, as mentioned, thinks he had a heart attack. But then it says, you know, he says he saw Laura. And they're like, what? That's a rabbit hole they don't even get to go down in this episode. Back at the station, James gives Cooper the tape. He's telling him, here's what happened. He's being very diligent and dutiful about it of course he's basically admitting to you know <laughs> invading somebody else's home and uh, cooper is getting pissed he's just gotten the note about the cocaine so he's already kind of mad and of course he's hearing that they went to jacoby's house and lured him out and all this stuff and he's like jacoby's in the hospital with a heart attack and james is like what so that's the direction that the therapy subplot has gone in this episode uh not well for pretty much anybody for the addiction subplot, Laura's addiction, the only reference to that this episode is Jacques talking about everybody getting high at the cabin. This is the second episode of Nothing for the Drug Dealing. And uh, as mentioned, the relationship to Leo has been uh, sort of put into w with other plots, the murder and the, mur the mystery man. This is the second episode of Nothing for Charity uh, for Flesh World, which was formerly classified under sex work. Now it's kind of its own subplot. We have Jacques confirming he shot the photos. Uh, with Laura and Renette. And for the Laura stories from episode one, we have a second episode of Nothing About Spirituality. So there's a lot of threads sort of being dropped here for a couple episodes. It'll be interesting to see if they come back. Big one that is present in this episode is employment. Laura's employment was dealing with Horn's department store, and it's very seamlessly moved into One-Eyed Jack's, which we don't know yet if Laura worked there. But that's Audrey has followed the thread of Laura's employment to get there. So I kind of love how this plot has developed. First, in episode one, we heard Renette worked at the perfume counter. In episode three, we find out that Laura worked there too. In episode four, uh, Audrey hatches her plan to go work at the perfume counter. And in episode six, we finally see her at the perfume counter. And now episode seven, we see her at One-Eyed Jack. So this has been a really interestingly evolving storyline. Not through one character and one clear-cut situation from the beginning, but sort of like weaving further into this kind of direction we might not have thought it would go. And both Ben and his relationship to One-Eyed Jack's which I was treating as a separate subplot, it's now fully a part of the storyline because Audrey is there finding out about what Ben's relationship to One-Eyed Jacks is. So we have Blackie uh, setting up Audrey for her night as the new girl, and Audrey looks over and she sees Cooper and Jacques on the surveillance screen. There's a little black and white TV, and she looks over, so she realizes Cooper's in the same place with her. And this scene really highlights Audrey's nervous side. The last episode showed her there was a little bit of nervousness here and there, but it was balanced with this confidence. And episode six was just such a fantastic Audrey episode. There's nothing like that in this one. She's more just sort of a victim of fate at this point. I mean, 
not a victim of fate because she put herself in the situation, but like she's being carried along by forces bigger than her at this point. And Blackie is very sensuous with her. She has her pick a card out that they're going to stitch and she's touching Audrey's hand and she's very sort of flirtatious with her. So that's an interesting touch. There really haven't been any uh, queer characters on Twin Peaks, I don't think, up until now. I suppose, other than, you know, they show someone like a cross-dresser in the Flesh World magazine. That's about it. So this is sort of a new a new direction to go in with that. But it definitely seems like more than just a sort of a friendly gesture. So then we see Audrey in the room. She's in sort of this white, ruffly dress that's different from the one-eyed Jack's uniform. For whatever reason, they're setting her off in a way they didn't the other new girl that we met. And who, by the way, that new girl from episode two who goes off with ben she's the one who brings audrey in in the previous episode so now she's like a veteran audrey is in this room she's listening to people laughing giggling fooling around in the other room you know there's only so much they can get away with sound wise on a network tv show but she's stuck in one place this whole episode so as i mentioned really a come down in terms of her activity and importance from the previous well not necessarily her importance she's still important to the plot but she's not doing much we have Ben and Blackie together celebrating after the Icelandic deal is uh, sealed. And Ben comes over, puts his arm around Blackie, and she says, congratulations, boss. And it's like a nice setup. I'm pretty sure in episode two, she never refers to the horns as boss. They seem like they're like very ritzy clients, but she seems like maybe this is totally her place. She knows she's got to sort of humor and play them up. But here we're finally getting the confirmation, which probably been suspecting all along i don't know if anybody gasped when they heard her say boss but uh yes he owns one-eyed jacks this is his place and this revelation if you can call it that immediately pays off with a cut to audrey it's like a submerged secret we've known all along but now that it's out it's really spilling out we got to deal with all its implications right away you know there's kind of a release of uh not tension because it's actually building tension in a way but like I guess the the knowledge getting out now means, like, let's get right to the point. And so, sure enough, we see Audrey in the room, door clicks, and there's, like, a little weird sparkle on the soundtrack, and she looks up, and Ben is entering the room. And, uh, by the way, there's, like, a hunchbacked seamstress who is stitching the card onto Audrey's dress. It's Leslie Linka Gladder, who is the director in uh, the couple episodes ago, episode five. She's uh, so, so it's a fun little cameo for her. She's stitching the Queen of Diamonds that Audrey picked out of the deck. And uh, finally, when Cooper returns to his room, he finds Audrey's note that she slipped under the door in the previous episode, but he doesn't open it up, and then, of course, he's shot. So another cliffhanger, as if we didn't have enough already. This is the third episode of Nothing for the One-Armed Man. Uh, if he's absent for another episode, we're going to have to put it in the dormant section and consider this something that's probably over with. For the Mystery Man subplot, we have Jacoby knocked out by this masked figure. So is this the mystery man? Now, of course, here's an interesting thing. I mentioned how this this character could be Leo. Uh, if so, then it can't be the mystery man we saw a few episodes ago. I'm talking about the masked man at this point. You know, if this character who knocks out Jacoby is the same character that we saw in the woods hiding behind Leo back in episode two, then obviously it can't be Leo. <laughs> You know, or maybe he has a partner and then they switch off who gets to wear the mask what night or something. But we have uh, Donna and James arriving before and, and taking Maddie away, which is good because it almost seems like the mask figure is going to go after her next after Jacoby because they were watching her at the end of the previous episode. I conflate this here. You know, it is a mystery man. So is it the mystery man? Well, on the tape, 
it really sounds like it was Leo that that Laura was referring to as the mystery man because she says F I R E as in red Corvette. So you know what is that implying here? And of course, also to further solidify that idea, Jacques is talking about uh, you know says uh, Leo was really doing a number on on Laura and this is and Laura talks about how she got off on almost being killed by this guy. He was very dangerous and so there's that whole aspect there. So they are. I think in this episode, you can say they're definitely pushing the idea that Leo is the mystery man. Is that the same as the masked man? Probably not. And also we hear Laura say at the end of her tape, here comes mom with milk and cookies. Bye, Lawrence. This is sort of this like teasing persona, making fun of the whole good guy, good girl um, conception of her, which is sort of a different direction. Like we've been getting very mixed signals about Laura all season, I think. And, uh, you know, at some times that she was sort of this bad girl who was just pretending to be good at others that she really wanted to be, you know, good and was just pulled into the, the, the darkness, that she was a victim, that she was a perpetrator, like all these different sort of mixed signals. And I think this episode, far from clarifying any of that, complicates it and, and really kind of comes down a little bit on the sort of... Uh, playing up her like bad girl qualities you know without really questioning what does that mean in in context for the laura and ben relationship uh via his association with one-eyed jacks although we get nothing specific they are drawing closer so i guess he could say that check off that box in this episode but it's still very implicit until we get confirmation laura was at one-eyed jackson even then you know ben is the owner so and he Spends time with the new girl, so that seems kind of ominous. But again, even then, we we still won't have full confirmation that they actually had any kind of... I mean, whether it's sexual, romantic, or what, uh, we'll really have no no clue until we get more on that. For the Laura stories introduced in episode four, we have her connection to Maddie. And the only... You know, as with Donna, Maddie's relationship to Laura doesn't get much much discussion in this episode. It's really much more focused on um i suppose the bad guys leo and jock you know those are the people we hear the most about her relationship with in this episode but um they do turn to maddie after hearing the tape and say i'm sorry you had to hear that and she says i'm okay but we can tell she's really shocked you know she was this nice girl who loved her little cousin she would come and visit and twin peaks and now it's like whoa she is getting a whole different side and kind of realizing i think in this moment how little she really knows about what's going on. They all seem in over their head at this point. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow's episode, will talk about the non-Laura stories and uh, look at all the scenes of the episode through that lens. Mm-hmm.